Welcome back to Point of Sale, the show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. Each week, I bring on an expert guest to cover a certain aspect or segment of the retail supply chain. Today, we're talking about a topic that covers every retail supply chain, both foreign and domestic, that is policy and legislation. My guest today is Rick Helfenbein. Rick is the former chairman, president, and CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. He's currently a retail and trade consultant in New York City and a special advisor to Serini, Samet, and Associates in D.C. He's also a contributing writer to Forbes.com. Rick, thanks for taking the time, my man. Hey, I'm really excited to be here. And I am excited for you to be here. So let's start with a little timeline of policy from the previous administration. The Trump admin enacted a swath of policies that affected retailers of all kinds. Give us a brief timeline of the Trump admin trade policies and and how the retail industry reacted to them. Oh, it's let's let's start off, Andrew, by saying it's it's been a uh, it's been a tough couple of years. It all started, oddly enough, uh, June 16th in 2015, when uh, then citizen Donald J. Trump got on an escalator at Trump Tower, rolled down to the bottom and said, uh, shall we say, some quite unfortunate things about Hispanic Americans. What followed after that was a little bit of a tiff with uh, with Macy's, um, followed by another tiff later on with Nordstrom's, where they removed uh, product with the Trump name from their stores. And for the last four years, it always thought uh, to those of us in the industry that um, somehow we must have upset the president by removing his brand from retail stores because you know, we're business people, Andrew, we're, we're not politicians, yet we've been in uh, the limelight, unfortunately, for quite a while now. Everything, everything that happened in this Trump administration has affected the uh, retail, wholesale uh, community in the United States. So walk me through a couple of the, the implementations. I know that they attempted at a BAT tax, a BAT tax at the, at the start. There were many rounds of attempts to implement tariffs. Uh, the, the retail industry fought back against a few of those. Tell me about some of those, those steps. Yeah, well, very well stated. We, um, we arrived in this new administration, and at the time, Speaker Paul Ryan was um, moving hard on a tax cut. And when you, when Republicans uh, do a tax cut, they always look for a pay-for. So they had this um, idea of a pay-for with something called a BAT tax or a border adjustment tax, or we called it a BAT tax. And for us, it was, uh, you know, quite frankly, Andrew, a bat out of hell, because on one side, you had the politicians telling you, this is great. We're going to cut your tax rate from 35% to 20%. The part they left out was they were then going to tax our cost of goods sold, which really meant the ultimate amount of dollars that we would pay would go up by three to five times. So the retail community was appalled by using us as a as a pay for, and we fought against it um, a lot, and to the point that uh, and and uh, to, to President Trump's. Uh, uh, you know, to his credit, I don't think he was particularly in favor of it either. It was something that came out of Congress. Anyway, by the time they launched it, uh, we were about a year ahead of them on campaigning against it. We we killed that thing dead. But 
as soon as the bad tax died, you know, like everybody said, oh, now we can get a, a day off. Uh, they started with the China 301 tariffs. And uh, everybody who's watching this program is extremely familiar with the 301 tariffs. So we went running up to the White House and we said, look, we understand, you know, you want to correct the balance of trade. You want to do it manually. Uh, you want to increase exports, decrease imports by taxation. Just stay away from consumables. Do not attack the consumers. You know, you, I hate to say this, but, you know, steel, aluminum, that's one thing. You, you know, you want to go after consumables. That's going to cause massive problems. It's going to cause inflation. It's going to cause restructuring of the sourcing world. Please don't do it. So uh, phase one came along. They didn't do it. Phase two came along of the 301 tariffs. They didn't do it. Phase three, they started inching into our territory. They hit us on hats. They hit us on gloves. They hit us on handbags with 25%. And um, finally, by phase four, uh, had they gone ahead with it, uh, phase 4A had 90% of apparel and about 55% of all footwear. So we were in their mind's eye. It was beyond scary. Um, I can continue if you want, because I'll, I'll bring you right through the whole thing. We then hit January 15th of last year, 2019, and uh, we see a China f phase one trade agreement. Now, to be clear, we didn't really like it. But we were happy to have it because by having it, we'd have some stability. We'd know what the tariff rates were going to be, and we could get back to business as normal, coronavirus aside. Uh, we would know what our costs were going to be. And it was just problematic. At any rate, they launched January 15th. They launched the China Phase 1 trade agreement. It's a year later, and it really hasn't worked. Uh, China only bought 58% of what they said they were going to buy. Um, we were afraid Tr President Trump was going to pull the plug on it, but we thought politically that might look bad because that was his big achievement, and it remains to be seen what the Biden administration is going to do. So let's get into what, the, what we think and expect from the Biden administration here in a moment, but let's talk about Trump's, the Trump administration's last, last act when it comes to these, uh, these tariffs and implementations of trade policy. Tell me a little bit about this WRO, this ban on uh, Chinese cotton and tomatoes from the Xinjiang region. Yeah, um, CBP, CBP, Customs Brand Protection, U.S. Customs, uh, issued a series of uh, WROs on the Tsar region of China. Tsar is the Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region. That region is the northwest section of China, as everybody knows. It's a breadbasket for growing things. One of the big things it grows is cotton, also grows tomatoes. Um, so um, there were two acts of legislation going after this. Um, one called the Disclosure, the Uyghur Disclosure Act was going to Congress. One called Prevention, the Uyghur Prevention Act. Uh, both made it through the House. They did make it to the Senate. At the same time, Customs, doing what Customs could do, issued a couple of our WROs. The last one was a blank, blanket WRO on the region on cotton and tomatoes. And basically, um, it means if you're bringing in goods, beware. They have the right to stop it, and you have to defend it. Now, it gets a little more complicated than that, and I, I would assume that uh, there are many people watching this 
who are in the freight business or in the um, in the customs brokerage business, and they understand that the law uh, was the law which would didn't make it through the last time, although it passed the House by four hundred six to three. Um, the Uyghur Prevention Act was just reintroduced again, maybe two days ago, by Senator Rubio and and Senator Merkley, and um, that new law, uh, if it's passed, and it very well could pass, has something in it called rebuttable uh, presumption, which scares the daylights out of anybody who imports, because that means, essentially, you're guilty until proven innocent. So um, unlike a WRO, where you might um, have a chance to explain you know, the source of the goods, the guilty until proven innocent scared um, a lot of trade associations in Washington, scared just about everybody. And it may become law, which if it becomes law is going to rearrange how we source goods because it will be very, very difficult um, to prove innocence, even though as an importer, you think you are totally innocent, even though your documentation says you are totally innocent. Um, it's scary. It's scary for those of us who deal in that because there's liability involved. So talk me through why it's so difficult to prove your innocence. Is that because of the lack of visibility from Chinese suppliers? Here's the problem in a nutshell. Um, you know, you could say, okay, just DNA this stuff. You know, it's very hard because you don't have access to the soil, so you can't be 100% sure where the cotton is coming from. So the DNA thing isn't like exactly working, although people like to tell you, you know, it could work. The the um, the problem, very simply, is that uh, how do I say this? If you've ever been in a spinning mill at three o'clock in the morning when they're throwing raw cotton bales into the hopper, what's to say that you know one guy didn't go over it and grab the wrong bale and throw it in the hopper? And the problem, very simply, is twenty percent. 20% of the world's supply of cotton comes from that region of China. 85% of China cotton comes from that region of China. And they could be making cotton. They could be putting it into, um, into fabric, shipping it to someplace in the Caribbean basin. And you think you bought it from someplace and you actually bought it from somewhere else. It is it is um, difficult to prove, although you can try your best and document every step of the way. But, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, could the cotton be contaminated? Of course it could be contaminated. Can you prove that it's not contaminated? Very difficult. So what should retailers do? What's the path forward to managing this? And, you know, can they move away from the Xinjiang region? Is it even possible? Um Everybody's going to try, and that's going to uh, uh, readjust supply chains globally, and those in the freight business have to figure out where products are going to come from, because you don't want to get hit with this. It's, um, it's First of all, in the apparel industry, one of the things that the industry stands for is we are opposed to forced labor anywhere in the supply chain. That's a fact, and we stand behind it. 
The problem is that we buy product from all over the world and we're standing behind the fact that we are not intentionally going to use it. But what happens if it becomes unintentional? So where those who are going to stay with, uh, you know, with China and those who are going to stay with cotton from China are going to be extraordinarily careful to document where everything comes from. And maybe this will work out, but the chance of it going awry is pretty good. You could say, I'm safe. I bought my goods from Vietnam. Oh, where did the fabric come from? Oh, the fabric came from China. Well, how do you know it didn't come from Xinjiang? Well, I have documentation it didn't come from Xinjiang. Really? (laughs) Let's see that documentation. Let's drill down. Let's go to the three textile mills you used in China, and let's see if that really worked out. Okay, so that's some ideas of what retailers should do. They're looking to diversify. Obviously, it's going to be difficult to do that. It's going to be uh, even more difficult to find visibility into their Chinese suppliers. But what about on the regulatory side? What should uh, governments do to implement and enact this rule? There are several trade groups that believe an international oversight committee is necessary to enforce such a broad rule. Do you agree with them? Well, it's it's not a question of agree or disagree. The problem with a hard and fast um, rule is it becomes non-negotiable. And what what retailers and trade associations are trying to do is create some transparency in the system so that they have the room to negotiate um, in case they get caught in a jam. Um, the, um, the NGOs don't like that. They want a hard and fast rule. Um, Apparently, uh, the former uh, Secretary of State Pompeo didn't like it either because he he labeled uh, what was going on in Xinjiang as genocide, which uh, you know gives it a whole new dimension. Nobody, I repeat, nobody in the apparel uh, industry wants to be involved with forced labor. We just don't. But we also don't want to get locked in a box where we can't have the ability to. Uh, have some oversight and say, you know, let's appeal this. Let's have a further discussion. And, and that's really what it's all about. It, it's sort of now become a war between the trade association and the NGOs, one wanting no room to negotiate, one wanting some room to negotiate. Because you, you know what's going to happen, Andrew, at all the ports? You're going to get jammed up because nobody's going to know for sure any of these details. So they need to be some transparency. There need to be some light at the end of the tunnel that there's a procedure, a transparent procedure for ability uh, to prove innocence against rebuttable presumption because who wants to be guilty until proven innocent? It'll scare everybody from doing business. That's what it's all about. Certainly not the the standard format for American uh, legislation, but let's talk about... uh, the the concentration of the apparel sourcing on certain markets, right? We talk about how people want to get out of this region. People want to move to other supply chains. You told me on a call previous that it takes five years to adequately move a supply chain. I want you to tell me a little bit more about that and tell me about the concentration in the apparel industry from where we source. Yeah, you know, truth be told, I've opened up uh, factories overseas. I've opened up many, many factories overseas. And the first year you open a factory, you lose money. I mean, take that to the bank. You're just not going to make money. Second year, if you're really, really good, maybe you could break even. 
by the third year you start to make a small profit. It takes about five years before everything with that factory is seamless. That's why we generally say it takes five years to move a supply chain. And as everybody who's watching this is a shipper knows pretty much, uh, all you have to do is look at the Texas guidelines. Where do goods come from? Uh, the last couple of years, 40% um, of all apparel has been coming out of China. Now, the last year is kind of hard to look at because of the coronavirus and who was running and who wasn't running. But it's been fairly consistent. So you want to tell people, get out of China, yet 40% comes from China. So if you're going to move it, where are you going to move it to? Well, number two is Vietnam at 14%. So a lot of Vietnam uses Chinese fabric. Have you solved the problem? No, you'd have to use fabric from somewhere else. So it gets complicated. You have 54% coming from two countries. You have 70% of all apparel going into the U.S. market coming from five countries. And you have 80% uh, essentially coming from 10 countries. So once you get past China, Vietnam, and you go to uh, India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, or Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, India is actually the last uh, order that I saw, then the last three are Cambodia, Honduras, and Mexico. So that is 80% of the U.S. market. You got 70% of the U.S. market in five countries and 55% in two. So from a shipping perspective, you know, like we always say, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? So... Um, the better makers are really tightening up their supply chains. They're also diversifying. So, you know, if you're a shipper, you've got to start to think, you know, what's coming next? Because it's going to be a rough road ahead, particularly with all these laws. I mean, the right thing to do um, is, is somehow uh, combat the, uh, the problems in the Tsar region in Xinjiang. But, you know, how do you do it? And how do you conduct business at the same time? This is the intellectual discussion that we're having with government. So let's talk about what is coming next. It's already here. It's the Biden administration. What are you expecting from a trade policy standpoint? Uh, I, I think you told me that you don't expect them to roll back a lot of the Trump uh, tariffs and the Trump policies, but they also you're not expecting them to add any more. What are, what are you seeing and expecting from the Biden administration over the next couple of years? Well, the, the good news about the Biden administration, they've been very transparent. They've been very clear. They've been out there. They've been talking. And we have a good sense of what they're going to do. There's going to be a lot of focus um, politically on China. And I wouldn't expect any unraveling of the 301 tariffs any time soon. Um, but I think they'll be used as a negotiating point. And, um, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, that will be dealt with in an appropriate manner. So I think the Buy America is good, but, you know, on the apparel side, only 3% of everything is made in America. Will that go up a little? Maybe. Um, but the, the bulk of apparel is still going to be, end up being imported. So uh, we have a good feeling uh, about the Biden administration because there's a lot of transparency and we sort of know where they're going. We don't know how this will uh, unwrap. Uh, we will have a new USTR. As somebody who's very familiar with China. So um, we will see.
but uh, we are we are a little more comfortable operating uh, in a Biden world versus Trump world because uh, we think we know what's coming next. Right. It seems a little bit of the same difference you had pre phase one trade deal to pre or to post phase one trade deal. You may not have liked the policy all that much, but at least it brought some certainty. Yeah. Well, in our industry, that's what we need. <laughs> we need certainty and then, then we'll deal with the problems as they come. Rick, I got to thank you. Thank you for your time today. This has been absolutely great. I do want to take one moment to uh, thank our sponsor, ArcBest. ArcBest is more than logistics. Whatever you do, wherever you ship, ArcBest makes it easier for you to do business. ArcBest combines reliable capacity, innovative technology, and trusted relationships to take the complex complexity out of your supply chain and keep your shipments moving. That's what make ArcBest more than logistics. Rick, thank you so much. I want to give you a couple minutes to give a shout out to anybody on your team or give everybody listening some information on where they can go to find more information about you. Well, uh, I do have a website, www.rickhelfenbein.com. Feel free to check me out. For that, I I thank you. And, you know, to all our partners uh, in Washington and around the world, uh, you know, I reach out to you and I say thank you because we're all in this together. We're all trying to uh, get together with government to make good policy and good decisions for the industry. And, Andrew, I thank you and your team a lot for bringing all the issues to light. Uh, We've had some rough sledding the last couple of years, and you guys have been great. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Rick. I think that puts a very nice bow on it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned next week for another episode of Point of Sale, the show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. Also, go and sign up for the Point of Sale newsletter. It comes out on Mondays and Thursdays, full of detailed insights on the retail supply chain covering the consumer, e-commerce, and everything in the evolving retail supply chain. Let's do this again next week. See ya. Wow.